When we think of emigration, we tend to think of those who are leaving the country and of their new lives somewhere else. But what about the family and communities they leave behind? Over the course of the 19th century, as international sea travel became better established, there were growing opportunities for British migrant workers to earn higher wages abroad. It was during this time that Cornwall became one of the biggest centres of British emigration. Each year, thousands of men left from mining communities to join a highly mobile global workforce. Some were gone for just a few years, others forever. So what happened to their wives and children? And how did their emigration impact on their communities back at home? I'm Mukti Jain Campion, and for this episode, I'm off to Cornwall to find out. Welcome to Departures, a podcast series from the Migration Museum, exploring 400 years of British emigration. Episode 7, The Left Behind Wives of Cornwall. So away Joe Trissois sailed to the land of promise, full of hope for the future, yet tinged with sad regret for the friends he had left behind him, but more especially for Molly Davy, the pretty round-cheeked farmer's daughter, who had promised to wait for him to send her passage money or until he came back to wed her in Cornwall. Dick Trestrail went aboard the same time and both were bound for Montana where many Cornishmen have congregated. This is the opening of a newspaper serial called The Roving Miner and His Maid, first published in the Cornish Telegraph in 1908. The story follows the adventures of a young man crossing the oceans to seek his fortune, like so many other Cornish miners during the 19th and early 20th centuries, leaving behind women like the round-cheeked Molly Davy. I wonder what Molly's doing now. Perhaps she's sleeping and dreaming that I've made me fortune uh, and on my way home to get married. Perhaps she ain't dreaming at all, <laughs> but sorrowful because I'm gone away. Ah, well. <laughs> We're here, Dick. Specks on the deep ocean. A cargo of human beings going out to make home in America. Or else come back with money enough to live comfortably in old England. My Molly's 2,000 mile away, Dick. 2,000 miles. The serial was published in chapters across several months and was avidly read by families around Cornwall who found themselves similarly separated from their loved ones. But why were so many Cornish miners leaving? On a wild and windy day in West Cornwall, I've come to meet a historian who can shed light on this emigration history. I'm Dr Leslie Trotter and we're standing today in the entrance of St Day Old Church in what was a town called St Day in the heart of the Cornish Mining District near Redruth. It may be a bit slippery inside because of the wet. Leslie unlocks the big wooden door to show me inside. Amazing isn't it? <laughs> it is amazing. We've now come inside the old church which surprises everybody because it doesn't have a roof but it's enormous. It was built to sit 
1,500 people at the height of the mining boom in this area. It's sometimes called the Cathedral of the Mines because it sits in the landscape on the top of the hill, uh, overlooking the valley where a lot of these mines were. Looking out at the peaceful vista of green rolling hills today, it's difficult to imagine that in its late 18th and early 19th century heyday, this was a noisy and dirty industrial landscape, full of heavy machinery, working the mines which were producing around half the world's copper and tin and employing tens of thousands of local men, women and children. Extracting these valuable minerals from the hard rock was a dangerous and difficult job, requiring sophisticated engineering techniques and years of mining experience. Because this was such an important mining area with all the expertise there, this is where people came to recruit miners to develop mines all around the world. And that just grew throughout the 19th century as you got different mineral discoveries, gold rushes in California and then in Australia, near the Great Lakes in America as well, copper mining in Australia. And then towards the end of the 19th century, you get gold being mined in South Africa. And all these places are drawing on the mining expertise of this area. But at the same time, you're getting mining in decline in Cornwall because the mines are being worked out. Exodus of Cornish miners. Melancholy tidings come to us from Cornwall. Newspapers throughout Great Britain drew attention to the growing plight of Cornish miners. The news from the country of Tray, Pol, Penn is simply to the effect that large numbers of Cornish miners, mostly of the better class, continue to leave their native land for foreign parts. Nearly 50 superior workmen are going out to Brazil and Peru, and two out of three of the Australian emigration agents' lists are again filled. Bolton Evening News, Thursday the 25th of November, 1869. The Cornish miners were basically part of an international labour market, so they would go wherever the best opportunities were, wherever it was around the world, some of those big places that I've mentioned. But also we had miners out in, in Russia, Turkey, India. Anywhere there was mining, you'd find a miner from this part of Cornwall. Towards the end of the 19th century, of the miners aged between sort of 18 to sort of early 20s, 45% of them had gone abroad. It was a huge exodus to the editor of the Royal Cornwall Gazette. Why are Cornish miners emigrating to such a serious extent? Miners were never more dissatisfied than they are at present. Strange as it may seem, the wages of miners are very little. Speculators are full of excitement. Capitalists are rapidly filling their coffers, and the prosperity of mining is the topic of discussion on everyone's tongue. But the man who digs out the wealth from the bowels of the earth is still pining in poverty and want. 11th of May, 1872. This was a really big town back in the 19th century, wasn't it? It, was, it wasn't big physically, but it was big Commercially, it was the commercial centre. We're standing in the marketplace, cobbled marketplace, right next to the, the town clock. And across the road there was a shop where you could book your tickets to go practically anywhere in the world. There were adverts in the local papers. There was always a column being running called Mining Intelligence. So people would be reading where the latest discoveries were, where the job opportunities were. Don't emigrate. Don't emigrate. Don't emigrate. 
until you have called the Cornish and Devon Post Office and seen W.L. Powell, Emigration Agent, who will give you all the information about fairs and best fields of labour. Cornish and Devon Post, 23rd of December, 1882. There were recruiting agents who were employed by the mine owners abroad to recruit from the local people. So they might get an order, say, we, you know, we need three miners, a couple of masons, carpenters, blacksmiths. It wasn't just people who went underground as miners. I imagine I was coming to a small village, so this is incredible. They've got such an amazing history. Cornwall was one of the major emigration centres of Europe at that time throughout the whole of the 19th century. Particularly in the mining areas, there were villages where there would be 300 heads of family away at any one time. In this village, St Day, it would be a case that there were 25% of all husbands away in 1851. There were whole roads where, where every other house was a wife who was managing on her own. It was these wives that captured Leslie Trotter's attention. She's now written a book called The Married Widows of Cornwall, in which she sets out to fill what she calls the woman-shaped hole in the story of Cornish emigration. I kept finding references to them in the footnotes of books on Cornish emigration, but nobody was looking at the women at all. It was almost as if they were just sort of written off as the, the victims of the whole story. And there had to be far more to it than that. To try and understand what happened to the women left behind isn't easy. Leslie Trotter had to play detective, trawling through census reports, local poor law records and court cases. She even contacted Cornish societies abroad to track down diaries and letters. One of the main themes to emerge was how the women survived financially when their husbands were away. It's a topic that featured in lots of newspaper accounts at the time. The several thousand miners who have left the county during the past year are physically, socially and morally the best of their class and are also the most skilful in their employment. Many have emigrated without leaving a shilling for their wives and families for the simple reason that there was nothing to leave. These have had to depend upon the kindness of friends and the forbearance of the shopkeepers. Men were employed on short-term contracts, usually lasting two or three years at a time. Some mining companies arranged for a portion of their pay to go directly to their dependents at home. But for most women, getting money from husbands abroad was fraught with difficulty. We take it for granted that you can transfer money around the world now. But of course, this is a time when most people weren't even familiar with paper money. So, you know, they're used to dealing with the few coins that their husband would have given them to go and spend and, and buy the family groceries. And suddenly you've got a husband who's trying to get money to you from Chile in the 1830s when there is no international bank transfer system that's easily accessible. And the only way to get money back is by people coming back giving you the money or it's being posted back. And of course, that would have been very unreliable. And then we move on to bankers' drafts. Well, that's quite a sophisticated system and it's quite a complicated system because the, the husband would be issued with one half of the draft, which he would post home to the wife. The other half would go via the banking system. And at some point in Cornwall, the two would have to be reunited so that the wife could get the money. But of course, we're also talking about women who were perhaps illiterate or quite likely to be illiterate. 
So how on earth they knew what to do with these strange pieces of paper that arrived in the post and that they were told was the money they needed um, is very hard to work out. Wasn't it quite vulnerable to fraud as well? It would have been. Very often you get in the immigration letters, husbands referring to having to send a second draft because the first one's gone astray. You've got bankers' drafts being lost. You've got bankers' drafts being misdirected and being cashed in by the wrong people. It was quite difficult to identify people because a lot of women had similar names. You know, there were an awful lot of Eliza Bennets around this area. So how did you prove that you were the right Eliza Bennett? Right on the corner of the marketplace is the Georgian front of the old post office. And of course, that was crucial because that's where all the remittance money from abroad was coming into the area. The miners who have emigrated to Australia and California are sending home considerable sums to their wives. And during the past fortnight, one post office alone has paid £400 in orders received from miners. Shields Daily News, 21st of September 1866. These remittances supported not just the migrant workers' wives and families, but also the wider community, as economic historians have attempted to calculate. For example, Redruth, the nearest town, in the 1890s, they reckon that there was about £1,000 to £1,300 coming in every week from South Africa. And at that time, that would be the equivalent of paying the weekly wage of 500 to 600 skilled labourers. So that's going to make a significant difference to the community. By the time you get to 1900, when you've got so many people working out in South Africa, they reckon that every mail boat from South Africa was bringing in 20 to 30,000 pounds, which in today's money is the equivalent of 1.5 to over 2 million every mail boat. That is a lot of money coming into the local community. And it's said that that sort of money at the turn of the century, is what kept this part of Cornwall going because by that time, Cornish mining really had declined and that, that was what the communities were living on. Managing the household finances was a constant struggle and one which seems to have forced many women to new levels of resourcefulness. I think they were quite entrepreneurial in the sense of coming up with ways of surviving, finding extra work for themselves finding ways of getting help from the community, whether it was um, negotiating credit with the shopkeepers, or even in a few cases, going to the poor law officers and claiming to be more impoverished than they actually were. And there were a few cases where women were claiming outdoor relief, which was the small amount of money given to them each week, when they weren't really entitled to it because they were also receiving remittances from their husbands. So there were all sorts of methods going on And what sort of paid work could the women expect to get? If people were struggling, it would have been taking in laundry, that sort of thing, um, sewing skills, whatever skills they had. And of course, we're not talking about widely educated women in many cases. So their opportunities were fairly limited as to what they could do to earn extra money. I think in many cases, there was a lot of support from the families and the communities, particularly as the century wore on, because this was an experience which was done from generation to generation. Towards the end of the century, there were households where there was the mother and the grandmother whose husbands were also abroad. So there would always be somebody you knew, an an aunt or a sister, who knew the ropes and knew how to cope, knew the 
the ways of surviving the situation they were in. The Young Man of Cornwall is a traditional song here arranged and performed in Cornish and English by the band Dalla, which includes singer, music teacher and writer Hilary Coleman. I remember as a child playing, throwing rocks down mine shafts, you know, that were completely open and listening to them booming, you know. It was all around us without even realising it, you know. In Camel and Red Ruth, I think there, there is such a legacy of the mining. Some people aren't aware that so many people have left Cornwall. Well, I suppose we particularly loved this song because it actually talked about the woman that was left behind, not the men who went out. And so much of our history is about the exodus, about the men, about the men working underground. That's our culture, strong thing of mining, farming and fishing. All male occupations, but wives, they don't get so much press. The thing about this song was it, it kind of alluded to the strong woman that's left behind. It's just amazing how they kept the households together. They had to manage everything, including the children, on very scanty chance of you know money coming back from their husband. I think that's probably the one unifying factor for all these women, because even if you were getting money regularly from your husband, you never quite knew whether that was going to carry on. It only took a mining accident or an illness for everything to come crashing down. Cornish emigrants killed in California. Intelligence has been received at Helston of a fatal catastrophe in California, which happened a few days after Christmas. A party of eight miners were located at the foot of a mountain which is being worked for silver. In the night, while all were asleep in their tent, a snowslide from the mountain swept down into the valley and entirely buried the frail tenements and its occupants. Jewel was unmarried, but Willie leaves a widow who lives at Helston with six children, the youngest, an infant, born since its father's departure. And previous to the death of these poor fellows, two others had met their death in the country, two only of the party now surviving. The Cornish Telegraph, Wednesday the 17th of February, 1875. The old church in St. Day bears witness to the many men from the area who died abroad. The graveyard's been extended several times. The beautiful old graveyard looks out onto a now picturesque green valley and is filled with lichen-covered slate headstones. We've just come up to the grave of the Lewis family. At the bottom of the tombstone, it mentions George Lewis, who was their grandson. And he died in Butte City in Montana in 1890, just 24 years. 24 years old? Yeah. We have gravestones which talk about fathers, sons and brothers who died in Honduras, Bolivia, the West Indies, South Africa, America, you name it, and there it's mentioned on the gravestones. None of these women would have known that their husband was going to come home. So they're all in that exactly the same situation of not being quite certain where the future is going to lead. 
Can you imagine an era before telephones and the internet, just how difficult it must have been for men to communicate with their wives and families? And many might not have been literate, so would have had to wait for someone else to read and write their letters to each other. Emigration may even have been a spur for greater literacy, particularly for women. There are quite a lot of letters from the men. This is John Dower in Australia writing to his wife, Mary Ann. And at one point, he actually says in the letter, I wish you'd learn to write. So clearly the letters he's getting from her are not being written by her. And they're, they're being written by their teenage son, we believe. There are quite a lot of immigrant letters generally. But trying to find letters from the wives who are left behind is very difficult. There are few and far between. I think I can only think of five. One of these letters gives a powerful insight into the struggles of an emigrant miner's wife, left to fend for herself and eight children aged between 12 years and just one month old. In Anne Goldsworthy's case, you can tell from the language that it is her actually putting pen to paper. Anne Goldsworthy's letter was written in February 1861 to her husband James, a Cornish miner who'd gone out to work in America. I spoke to one of Anne's descendants who now owns the letter. My name is Amanda Drake. I live in Columbia, South Carolina. My four times great-grandmother was Anne Harris Goldsworthy, who was the author of this letter uh, that we have. She was married to James Goldsworthy, who emigrated to New Jersey with the expectation of it being temporary, I suspect, in March of 1860. And she's writing to her husband uh, from her home where she remained in Skinner's Bottom in St. Agnes in Cornwall. And she is cataloging the events of a really terrible 24 hours proceeding in which their son Colin has passed away. Dear, dear husband and father, I write you these few lines, hoping they will find you in good health. I write with an aching heart and a feeble frame. I have not had my clothes off for one week. Colin is dead. Dear little fellow, he died this morning ten minutes before four. I thought if you could look into my house this morning, it would have been an awful sight for you. When he died, I had no one to speak to but my children, and they was all asleep when Colin fell asleep with Jesus. He cried night and day for father. He told us all he was going to heaven. His cries have been awful about you, James. I hope I shall never experience such thing again. I have not a farthing of money. Father, my money has not come and I don't know what to do. The last six pounds you sent. I did not pay more than four to your father. I am glad I did not, for I put the two pound in charges. If I did not, I should be in some mess by this time. Little Anne has been bad for three months. Her complaint is exactly like Colin. I don't think you will ever see her again. I would not for you to have left this house for all the money that is in this world. The most wrenching part of it is where she says that, like, I wouldn't you have left for all the money in the world. They had made this decision for him to go and support their family. But that what she needed was him, there. I do believe it will be the death of little Anne. She is mad to see her father, but there is a great gulf between us, James. I believe that I shall get better again myself. I am not in no decline, nor 
no such thing as that I have had thirty pounds from you since you have been gone. You have been gone near eleven months. I don't think that ever you have made up the cost, James. It have cost me all of that in flour and coal, so you see we could not go fat, though I think you have done your best. I think what a lot of them didn't realise was how expensive it was going to be to run two households, because not only were the men having to earn money to support their wives at home, they had additional costs where they were. So because the family was living in two different places, the husbands were having to pay for people to cook for them or do the laundry. And at the same time, the wives were having to pay for other people to do the odd jobs that perhaps the husbands might have done, repairing the family shoes, for example. So for the married men in particular, they had to earn proportionally more than the single men. And there was this unreliability. You never knew when the next batch of money was going to come. When I had the last letter from you, little Colin said, We are glad to have a letter from father, aren't us, mother? Be sure, father, to write every month to me. Letters would have taken several weeks to reach their destination. And yet her husband's written words of comfort are clearly a longed-for solace. I do do me a plenty of hurt when you do keep me after my time. I don't sleep until I got my letter. I'm not sure what preconception I would have had about the literacy status of of someone in her position or ability to, you know, communicate so intimately on an emotional level. But it sounds like her husband, as far away as he was, remained committed to their family. It seems as though she had a good and intimate relationship with her, her husband, despite the distance. This is a lock of Colin's hair. The other four boys are quite well. Jane and Baby is quite well. They are all in good health. I shall put little Anne down to Dr Pascal when Colin is buried, if I do live and I shall have a few shillings. But how I shall get on, I don't know. I shall write again as soon as I have got my money. And little Anne is going to send a little book to you. Colin waked the children one night singing Praise the Lamb. Your mother took him up upon her lap and he said little Colin is going to glory. That was a few days before he died. He was in fits two days and nights before he died. He did not know me before he died. I have not slept not an hour as seven nights. Your father and mother have never been better. They give their love to you. Colin will be buried Wednesday. That will be the 20th day of the month. We remain yours, wife and children, Anne Goldsworthy. Later that year, in October, Anne herself passes away. The, the cause of death at burial is listed as consumption, so certainly it seems there were a number of family members in declining health through this period. Then in 1862, two more daughters pass away. The daughter Anne, who is about 14, I believe, at the time, passes away in April of 1862, and then um, daughter Elizabeth, who is three, passes away in June of 1862. There are four children that are unaccounted for, um, in addition to John, my direct ancestor, who appear to have either, you know, survived, moved in with other family members, or, or also immigrated. One can only imagine the shock and grief of Anne's husband on losing his wife and so many of their children while he was thousands of miles away. 
Amanda Drake has investigated American census records and found that their son John emigrated to New Jersey in 1865, aged 15, and also became a minor. It's clear that the family remained connected, and James, who who I don't believe ever returned to Cornwall after the, the death of his son Colin and his wife Anne, certainly maintained connections with these children and presumably his parents, uh, who were still living in Skinner's Bottom. What comes across in Anne's letter is the huge emotional toll of trying to juggle everything on your own. The pressure on such marriages must have been huge. Dr Leslie Trotter again. Yeah, on both sides, I think. You you pick it up from the husbands as well. You know, there are some lovely letters where the husbands are saying, I really wish you were here to share the things I'm seeing, whether it's exotic birds or a new experience. And inevitably, it's going to have strain on, on the marriages. And some just drifted apart. Um, there are sad cases where the husbands, you know, had every intention of, of coming back or every intention of sending for their wives. But things go slightly wrong. They they put off writing that letter to say, you know, because they think things are going to get better. I'll write when I send some more money, but the money doesn't come in. So they don't write. And it gets longer and longer. And gradually they, they get to the point where they don't feel they can write. And there's a, an interesting editorial in the, in the local paper of the time um, from the editor who really knew the mining world. And he describes how that gradual drift of embarrassment from the men, they, they just lose contact because they, they feel ashamed that they weren't able to succeed in their mission for the family. Men who deserted their wives and failed to send money to support their families became a source of growing concern as the century wore on. Sometimes they were pursued by the local poor law office, via their employers, or even named and shamed in overseas newspapers. There was also another worry, that the long absences of husbands led to more immoral behaviour and marital infidelity. Inevitably, separation led to new relationships being formed and uh, what's been referred to locally as sex triangles going on. There were cases of bigamy. There were cases of husbands starting second families abroad. And obviously there were affairs. There were a few divorces, but they were very rare because divorce wasn't easily obtainable. But inevitably, relationships collapsed and people went their own way. It wasn't all despair and gloom. Many relationships did survive. And women must have delighted in receiving exotic tokens of their husband's affection from faraway shores. Most of the stories involved a friend who turns up at the door and gives the wife a gold nugget, which he's been asked to give her from her husband. And But there are also wonderful sweetheart brooches, which were sent home by friends. And these often included sort of little, small nuggets and perhaps a little pick and shovel. And these were sort of just lovely little keepsakes. And men would also send home, you know, foreign coins for their children, that sort of thing. Many of the women did thrive economically and enjoy the rewards of their husband's financial success. Some of the women did very well. They did considerably better with their husbands providing money from abroad. You've uncovered some stories, haven't you, of women going a bit mad when the money came in and splashing out on luxuries for themselves. Well, who can blame them, you know, to be honest? If you've been struggling on your own for a long time and the money comes in, you're going to have a little bit of a celebration. There's this one wife who would spend the money 
um, that her husband sent home on things like shoes and slippers from Paris while running up a credit note at the local butcher's. I don't think she told the husband because he then came home and and was hit by a legal case by the local butcher who wanted paying. (laughs) And of course, it wasn't just the money from the migrant workers that transformed the families and communities. Travel expanded the horizons and not just of those who emigrated. People in Cornwall would probably know far more what was going on in the Cape in Africa than they would do in London because of all this information and the contact and knowledge of other communities, uncles sending back newspapers and and other family members. There's so much material coming back into Cornwall. But also because a lot of people came back, they'd been exposed to different environments, different foods, tastes, smells. That must have fed into the community in some way. There's a whole load of research, which I think really would be fascinating. And what about your research? What would you like people to take away from it? There were so many people who'd say, oh, my grandfather went abroad and he left his wife. I'd like to see the stories being phrased about my grandmother managed on her own while her husband worked abroad. I'd like to just turn the tables and let's talk about their stories because that then sheds a light on the whole migration story. And this is echoed by Amanda Drake, who believes that the experiences of women like her ancestor Anne Goldsworthy demonstrate how wives did play an active role in a family's emigration story. It's clear to me when I read the letter that though she is in this wretched position where she is bereft at the loss of her son and at the absence of her husband to share in this grief, that she herself participated in this decision. She was part of this migration, even though she never left. She was a woman who, though limited in her own ability to contribute financially to her family in the way that her husband could by by traveling abroad, she was holding down the, the fort at home and trying to keep a family together. And it took a lot of gumption and a lot of a lot of conviction in her family to do that. Departures was produced and presented by Mukti Jane Campion. Title music is by Shakira Malkani. The Young Man of Cornwall was performed by Hilary Coleman, Beck Appleby and Neil Davey. Historic readings were by Adrian Prater and Joanna Perslow. The podcast series is a CultureWise production for the Migration Museum and has been supported by the Arts Council, England. To find out more about the Migration Museum and current exhibitions, visit the website www.migrationmuseum.org.